With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Bigger Ten Podcast. I am John Miller, along with Steve Dace, going to wade into some Big Ten topics. And Steve, a lot uh, went down last week at the Big Ten Media Days, but let's let's hone in on a few of the observations that uh, that you made from what you saw and witnessed at Big Ten Media Days. And we'll go team by team. And you can uh, check these out at our Bigger Ten Twitter handle, at Bigger Ten. That is T-E-N spelled out. Not the number, but the word T-E-N, Bigger Ten. Um, Go alphabetical order. Indiana, you said it seems that all the buzz around this program left with Kevin Wilson. Um, Yeah, I guess it's all relative. I'm not sure how much buzz there was, or maybe just because Kevin Wilson came to Indiana as a hotshot coordinator from Oklahoma. Um, Expectation, and certainly he had some pretty powerful offenses. But yeah, I mean, Indiana was one of the teams last year that I would say probably disappointed as much as anybody compared to your preseason expectations. So, John, you know this time of year, man, I'm jonesing for anything football. I'm watching old games on YouTube that I've known the outcome of for 30 years. <laughs> I mean, anything at all. I'm, I'm, I'm playing NCAA 2014 with this year's rosters right now. Anything to get me through these last few weeks. And I just couldn't do Tom Allen at the podium, John. I just I couldn't do that. I tried. I tried, and it just had me wondering. And I wonder what Jerry Kill and Tracy Clays are doing right now. I, I just... I couldn't do it, man. I was wondering, you know, I was looking up terms like vestigial <laughs> organ. Like, do I really, maybe these are body parts I don't need. I could just remove to pass the time. I just, I couldn't do it, John. There's nothing happening there. No buzz. No buzz at all. Well, too bad for Indiana. Let's move on to Maryland. Everyone keeps forgetting they had the worst quarterback injury luck in college football last season. But can DJ Durkin mesh with new offensive coordinator Matt Canada, who's getting a bit of a reputation? Reputation for what? Being difficult to work with. Hmm. You know, two of his last three jobs didn't leave in the best of circumstances. Did a tremendous work at NC State two years ago. And was, you know, you saw that with or I'm sorry, at Pitt two years ago, and you saw that with Nathan Peterman and the big upset they pulled over Clemson. But um, I wonder if, if he's difficult to work with or not. Now, I think the good news with having D.J. Durkin as your head coach is he just wants to coach the defense. Right. You know, one of the problems he had with that Orgeron is Orgeron's an offensive, is a defensive line coach, but a meddler, and has been known for meddling with his coordinators in the past. So the hope for this to work is DJ Durkin just liter- just essentially says to Matt, Cap- Matt Canada, you know, I'm going to treat you the way Jim Harbaugh treated me at Michigan. You're, you coach this half of the ball. This is your team. You're Bailey Wick. I will make major corporate decisions. But day to day, this is what you're responsible to. If he does that, I think they have some nice pieces there with the young quarterbacks. 
Uh, and, and, you know, Tyrone Johnson, who's one of the most underrated players in the entire Big Ten. But I think that's something to keep a lookout for. Next up on your Twitter observations from Big Ten Media um, in alphabetical order, Michigan. The difference between the Harbaugh you see in press avails and conferences and the guy who shows up for actual interviews is like night and day. What do you mean by that? Well, if you watch that the press conference, and it was even before he got the trolling questions from fanboy bloggers pretending to be journalists at Ohio State and Michigan State, who basically asked him, don't you suck and think you should quit? Okay, so even before that, he was essentially just uh, beyond awkward, disinterested. And then when we got to the individual interviews with the Big Ten Network, with Sirius XM, couldn't have been more engaging, couldn't have been friendlier. So I just think the guy doesn't like press avails where um, he feels like he's going to get asked a lot of dumb questions or questions he doesn't want to answer. Uh, and he's completely different when you hear from him uh, in, in interviews, which he rarely grants. It's funny because, you know, we're constantly told as Michigan fans, well, we hate your coach because he's always looking to, you know, use the media for publicity. Really? Because he do- we don't have a media day. We didn't have a spring game. He doesn't do any interviews. He doesn't do any press avails. He shuns the media whenever he can. I don't really know where this line of reasoning comes from. I don't know why it's his fault that ESPN basically treated him like, you know, the networks treated the Trump presidency, uh, just decided to cover everything he did, whether he asked it or not. But um, it's very clear he does not want, he does not like dealing with the media in a corporate setting. But if you get him one-on-one, it's perfectly fine and pliable. I mean, I never got much out of the corporate settings, uh, certainly not at the Big Ten convention. When you have your own press conferences on campus and you're not worried about trolls and things like that, it's a little bit different. But, yeah, I, I those from the dais, Chicago-based Big Ten press conferences that each coach gets about 10, 15 minutes, I don't know that I ever found anything worth even talking about. So I, I can't say as I blame him. Michigan State. Second year in a row, a member of the media responded to Mark D'Antonio's typical closing remarks with go green with a go white. Are you freaking serious? Second year in a row this happened. Yeah. That's unbelievable. That is not D'Antonio's fault. I mean, it's kind of his traditional thing, you know, go green, like go blue, go Hawks. That's his his typical sign-off, right? Second year in a row, somebody in the press, uh, press, press gathering at Big Ten Media Days responded back with a go white i'm really surprised that they let those guys in the guy that at the michigan the guy that asked the question about michigan state and harbaugh and aren't you overrated has 65 twitter followers no one's ever heard of him he's basically a fanboy not even i mean not even like a rivals reporter you know what i'm saying i mean just i mean I, I, the standards for what they are permitting in here, at the same time, where we, we, you know, seemingly have no, no standards for what actually is real news or fake news, it's fascinating for me to watch this as both the person who works in and is critical of the media. Well, like he, if I were the if I were the Lansing State Journal reporter, and that and that and that jabroni got with sixty Twitter followers, because here's what's going to happen when when it's Michigan Michigan State week. And I want to come and I want to do a Michigan interview or come and do it. You know what I'm saying? You know how I'm getting treated. Like poop. That guy just effed us all, just screwed us all. 
So if I was the reporter at the Lansing State Journal or the New the Michigan State reporter for the Detroit Free Press, man, I'd be all up in the Big Ten, Big Ten's business. Like, have you no screening process at all? Do you understand this stuff's going to make it's hard enough dealing with Harbaugh on the Big Ten press media call now? Now, when you have me identify myself as the Lansing State Journal, hell, I might as well send him a mugshot and a DNA sample. That doesn't make my job any easier at all. No, it doesn't. And that person would have had to have gotten in on the piggyback of some type of at least known media entity. So uh, we'll be interesting to see if there's any fallout from that. Ohio State, Urban Meyer's handling of the Zach, of Zach Smith begs more questions than it provided answers. And if he were 100 other coaches in college football, this would be a national story and he'd be in much more hot water. Am I, the only thing I'd think about that tweet, if I could redo it, is I might say if he was 120 other coaches. Yeah. Because there's 131 Division One schools. Um, that doesn't mean something nefarious happened here. You know, I, I think it's entirely possible. You know, like this, the 2015 arrest that just came out in May, um, I, I think, or just came out this week from Brett McMurphy, what happened in May that broke this story open is Zach Smith had a no-contact order with his ex-wife and was supposed to drop their daughter off in a public place, and he took her to her house instead, which violated his no-contact order. Now, the obvious question here is, why would you have a no-contact order with the ex-wife but private visitation with the child, who would seemingly be you know, even more vulnerable to someone who's violent? And I can just tell you, having grown up in a home of domestic violence, these things are not cut and dried. They're complicated. Um, and um, I would just, I would just caution people. Listen, I'm someone who I would literally, physically protect my mom from my dad. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of there's so much dysfunction anymore in the in the traditional family unit. I just think we need to be very careful. You know, I read a story today, or, you know, about a University of Missouri player who was caught with sexual 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 assault by Title IX. All the women turned out lied. I saw a case with the University of Tennessee with a player over the weekend who was an all-SEC linebacker, lost his scholarship. The jury acquitted him in 45 minutes. I'm just saying, you know, when a culture is is losing its virtue like ours is, it's not just one gender or another or ethnicity or race or socioeconomic group that is more prone to a systemic moral collapse than another. We just need to be very careful. I think it's entirely possible, knowing how insulated a, a high program like Ohio State is and its fans and alumni are. I don't know what you think, John. I think it's perfectly feasible to think one of those arrests was absolutely uh, hidden from Urban Meyer specifically so he wouldn't have to act on it. And that's why that's why Zach Smith's name was never in one of those police reports. I think that's entirely possible, don't you? Yeah, I do. I, I do. Just, you know, the old plausible deniability thing. So, yes, yes. I do I do think but, that's possible. So I'm willing to give Urban the max benefit of the doubt because he's not had all the issues at Ohio State that he had at Florida where they were rife with off-the-field problems when he was there. But the way he handled this, saying this was a tough decision for me, using phrases like he said, she said, in this environment, if he were coming off going 9-3 and three or 8-4, and four, um, if he had a three and seventeen record, or or one, I should say one and five record against his rivals, this would be the lead story on SportsCenter every night for the last week. 
Probably right. Penn State, considering how explosive Nittany, the Nittany Lions have been on offense the past two seasons, James Franklin says this is his actually the first time since he's been there that he thinks his offensive line is a strength. Yeah, what do you think about him saying that? Well, I, I think we've been very critical, um, maybe not as much last year, but the year before, certainly in 2016, and I think back to 2015, 2014, been critical of the offensive line at Penn State. And I, I tend not, I'm not going to argue with him. I, I think that uh, maybe they are. Well, even last year, you go back, I mean, there were like some 18 carries for 45-yard efforts with Saquon Barkley in the backfield, you know? So mm-hmm. they were struggling to move the line of scrimmage with elite-level skill position talent. It, it could be argued uh, – in fact, I don't even think it's an argument now that I think about it. Last year with Barkley, um, with the receivers they had, with Gasicki at tight end, McSorley at quarterback, I mean, that's the best array of skill position talent Penn State's had since arguably – the best offense in modern Big Ten football history, the 1994 Penn State team, okay? Uh, And even then, like, you never had any games where Kajana Carter had 18 carries for 38 yards, okay? So even with the talent they had last year, which was, you know, exceedingly elite, that unit was a struggle. But here's where, where it's good news for, you know, you and I's two favorite teams. You know, Iowa retooling its offensive line, Michigan trying to... Uh, restore its offensive line um if you know what penn state has shown the last couple of years is if your skill position talent is good enough you you still will struggle in certain situations when you need to run the ball like they needed to run the ball in the second half against ohio state with a lead and they couldn't but against a lot of other competition you can scheme around not having the most dominant offensive line penn state's shown that the last couple of years yeah they have rutgers Chris Ash is being paid well, so he's not a victim by any means, but it's tough watching him stand up there and get almost no questions. And I will say this, yes, uh, that has been that has happened more than once to Kirk Ferentz, where three, four questions in, it's silence. Any, any more questions for Kirk Ferentz? Anyone? It's almost become something I'm disappointed when it doesn't happen because it's, a, it's an inside joke with, with Iowa fans. But, yeah, mm-hmm. that, that, that's uncomfortable. Now, here's the difference with Ferentz, though. With Ferentz, and maybe, I don't know if it's still this way, but, you know, before print was dead, when you and I worked in daily sports media, the competition between the Pat Hardys and Randy Petersons and Mark Morehouses and all these guys was so fierce no one would ask questions in corporate settings. Yes. There would always be, after Kurt left the dais, they'd all, you know, it'd be like a blitzkrieg to jump him when he walked off the set or off the stage to get, you know, an individual quote. They would sit there at Big Ten Media Days at his table the entire three hours just to make sure no one asked a question that gave him a quote that they missed out on. You know what I'm saying? So. Oh, uh, yeah, I was there. That Yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's part of the... I think in Ferentz's case, some of it's fed by the local media is exceedingly competitive to get access to him. But here, like, like, you know, I listen to WTKA in Ann Arbor a lot in my spare time to keep up on Michigan. And they've been doing, for the local show there, shows there, has been doing opponent previews of Michigan's 12 opponents. And it was the time in the schedule to, on the rotation to do Rutgers. 
And the guy who covered, there were two guys who covered Rutgers. One of them couldn't do it because it was going to be, the show was going to be during Big Ten media days. The other guy literally told him, dude, it's Rutgers. It's Rutgers, man. You don't want to do us. It's not worth 20 minutes of your time. This team's not any good. That was their freaking beat writer, okay? You know, and I, I knew Chris Ash when he was a young up-and-coming coach. His first job in Division I um, as a paid full-time assistant with Dan McCarney's DB coach here at Iowa State. And I loved him. Great guy. I'm not surprised at all to see the success that he's had. Just it's tough for me on a personal level knowing him years ago and you know i know when you're when you walk off that dais you know you're still making two to four million a year and living a nice life right it's just it's, it's a tough watch it's a tough watch yeah yeah it is i mean heck that guy chris ash lived uh, in between uh you and me before i moved from uh yeah i know right where his house is we used to live really close to there um right, uh, illinois lovey smith showing up as a cross between uncle drew and duck dynasty was a bold move What'd you think of that one? I laughed. By the way, if you've not seen Uncle Drew, John, I think it's better than White Men Can't Jump. I think you would love it. Oh man, uh, White Men Can't Jump just—it hits me right in the feels from my youth. I the I first the first fifteen minutes of White Men Can't Jump is yes. still to me as a forty-seven-year-old white dude who had troubles jumping. I laugh out loud, funny nonstop for fifteen minutes. I mean, Billy Ho with the socks. I mean, the first 15 minutes, we go into Sizzler. I know what you're talking about. Okay, I'm in. I, so the, you're right. With the nostalgia built in, you're probably going to disagree with me. But Uncle Drew is a, a ton. Of, I mean, it is a ton of fun. And if you've seen the movie, he absolutely looked like a cross between Uncle Drew and Doug Dynasty showing up with that Santa beard. I couldn't. I thought, I don't, if I was an Illini fan, I don't know what I would think of that look. <laughs> You'd either love it or be terrified. Yeah, I mean, um, on one hand, you're like, the guy's just let himself go. He's given up. On yeah. the other hand, you know, you, you want to project the notion of a father figure to inner city America. Well, you kind of, well, now you kind of look like a grandfather. Yeah, figure. father time there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, Iowa, Kirk Ferentz listing punter as perhaps his most pressing personnel issue entering camp is the most Ferentz thing ever, especially because it's true given the way that Iowa plays. Hey, by the way, one last thing in Illinois. How about the fact I pointed out Lovey's beard was the only thing that stood out to me. You gave me no pushback. What do you think that means? It means we both picked them to finish under their two and a half overs. And by the way, if you want to hear our over-under predictions for every uh, major school, uh, major What's the P1 or whatever? It's Power called? 5. Power 5. P5. Um, listen to the Hawkeye Nation podcast this week. No, no pushback. They're horrible. They're abysmal. So there you go. But yeah, Ferentz listening punter is his most pressing personnel issue. Entering camp is the most Ferentz thing ever because it's true given the way Iowa plays. Isn't it, though? I mean, when most of your games, when when probably on even on any given year, whether Iowa is 6-6 six and six or 12-0, and 0, in any given year, Eight or nine of Iowa's 12 games are 24-21, 21-17, right? I, so yeah, I, I would say... Those yardage numbers with a punter mean a lot in games like that. They, they do. I would say that last year, if Iowa had um, an above-average punter, if they would have had Ron Caluzzi from the year before, um, they probably would have beaten North Dakota State and maybe Northwestern. I, I think it was at least worth one and a half wins. I think it probably is for them every year. If you've got a good one, you got that's that's when Iowa's got a chance. And it's crazy to say this, but if Iowa has a good punter, 
They because they typically have a good defense, <laughs> but if they have a good punter combined with a really good defensive line, that's one and a half win swing right there. You know when he finally retires, and they've got to go get and, and you've always got to do totally different from the previous guy. So whether the next guy is Brian Barrens or somebody else, whoever it is, the big selling point is going to be offensive innovation and modernization. And you know, you and I both know, the first time they lose to Iowa State or something like that, the whole podcast over on Hawkeye Nation is going to be, man, really miss Ference when Kirk was here and kind of knew what you were getting into every year. Didn't really appreciate it as much. You know it's coming. That, I'm, I am fast forwarding to the Miller and Dace podcast 2022 and that that show is absolutely coming count it uh yeah you're probably right and i i kind of jumped the tracks there iowa north dakota state was 2016 but that's when ron caluzzi was punting so maybe i'm wrong there but last year you know the penn state game when you lost on a uh, a last second of the game right. and and you know you averaged it, it, it just it just wasn't good it wasn't good moving on Minnesota, P.J. Fleck was one of the two league coaches who went out of his way to lower expectations, stretching how this is going to be the youngest roster in the league. Um, Yeah, I think they are going to struggle a lot. And his first year, you understand struggles. It happens. Even though that team won eight or or nine games that he took over. Um, Nine games before he arrived. Nine games. So if they struggle this year, and you and I both think they're going to finish under the six-win total, if they struggle mightily this year and win three or four games, which I don't think is impossible, um, year three for P.J. Fleck, especially given the grading-on-you personality type that I think he has, at least it grates on me before he was even hired, may grade on a few other people who were willing to give him some grace. Well, you know, I look at the way Fleck is handling – handled himself compared to say Matt Campbell at Iowa State and you know Fleck is Fleck was adamant about well we haven't won a championship here since 1967 or since 1960 actually uh and you know Iowa State hasn't won one since 1912 he was adamant about you know we've only got like a half dozen seniors that you know have actually played major college football we're going to by far be the youngest team he was clearly dialing down expectations and I go to a guy like Matt Campbell at Iowa State, first question he gets at Big 12 media days is about inexperience in their offensive line mm-hmm. and whether that's going to hold the program back. And his answer was, well, you know, we've actually had several reserves who, you know, have over the course of their four-year careers here so far started a handful of games. We, sh- we do not expect a drop-off, nor we would permit one. I mean, just a totally different approach, right? Now, if Iowa State didn't go eight and five last year i don't know that matt campbell would have had a go for broke answer like that to a question like if they'd gone four and eight or five and seven right because so but the point of that is this thought exercise is i think it gives you an idea of what two of where two young coaches believe their program really is Mm -hmm. and clearly fleck believes he's at a place where campbell believes he's at a place where it's time to hit the gas and you know, PJ thinks he's at a place where it's time to pump some brakes. Yeah. And I think it's, it, with his personality, I do think it's a tough sell to be a bull in a china shop, you know, force of nature, and then a year into it, turn around and say, 
all right, we got to build this the right way. I, I think that's kind of should have been your message last year. Right, right. Um, I've got about 80 mile an hour winds bearing down on me in Owasso, Oklahoma in 15 minutes. So I would like okay. to have two minutes to run around like a madman and pick up some uh, power tools I've left outside. <laughs> Nebraska, Scott Frost was the other coach to stress lowering expectations, going so far as to say they basically had to start all over again. They've drifted so far from what Nebraska is supposed to be. I will tell you this, Steve. I, I don't want to like Scott Frost. Um as a fan, I, I hear but yeah. at, but as somebody that loves college football and the history of it, I yep. really like Scott Frost. He's yep. saying all the things you and I've been saying for the last five, six, ten years, maybe about Nebraska, how they've drifted from their identity. They don't have any identity in the trenches, and he's saying all the right things. And if he can do seventy-five percent of what he's saying, Nebraska is you know Nebraska is going to be a uh, perennial contender for the uh, Big Ten West. I mean, he went into detail, John, nutrition, academic, rep, you know, preparedness. I mean, he basically made the case, guys, we are we are back to the state to the stage of primordial ooze. OK, um, I mean, he went way out of his way, as did Fleck, to minimize expectations, which I think is a very prudent thing to do when you're going into your first year. Now, the difference is because of the native son aspect. Um, similar to a Harbaugh at Michigan, the amount of rope Frost would get compared to anybody else with that message, you know, is the distance between here and the equator. All right. But and, and Fleck probably doesn't have that amount of rope. But you can see already Frost uh, has been a little bit more prudent in how he's handled the transition, I think, than Fleck maybe. Yeah. Northwestern, interesting dichotomy for Pat Fitzgerald to say he's unsure Clayton Thorson will be ready for Purdue week one on the one hand, but then bringing him to Big Ten media days to represent the program nonetheless. Um, Thorson's obviously a leader in that locker room, and if he's unavailable to be a leader in the huddle early on, I still don't have a problem with him bringing your locker room leader. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just worried about his, rep, prep, his preparedness. I mean, they've got... Four of their toughest games in the first month of the year, including the very first game of the year against Purdue. And I, I, don't, I don't need to keep repeating it. I brought it up for the last eight months, and you've got 80 mile an hour winds bearing down on you. But Fitzgerald didn't, Fitzgerald didn't say anything to alleviate my concern about that last week. Yeah, just so you know, I'm serious. Dangerous storm producing damaging winds to around 80 mile per hour heading to Ulaga and Talala. And I am next to Ulaga. Um, Purdue, Jeff Brom's first year success story last year was built on an improved defense and two-headed quarterback monster that combined for an outstanding 28 to 11 touchdown interception ratio. So not surprisingly, he brought, he brought both quarterbacks, David Blau and Elijah Sindelar. That is, I don't want to say unprecedented, but you don't see that often if it's ever happened. Uh, the only I, I, I was thinking about this because, you know, you you, you weren't going to bring Drew Henson and Tom Brady because one was a freshman and one is a junior. So, you know, Stanley Jackson and Joe Germain at Ohio State, maybe twenty mm -hmm. years ago. I, you know, is that like the only other time a coach may have done something like this? Because I've never even heard of it ever happening. You bring two quarterbacks. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know how often that's happened either. Um, lastly, Wisconsin, typical Badgers, no buzz, all substance. They know who they are, and they don't really care if you care. And I think that is spot on. Yeah, I think if I was a Wisconsin fan, I would just love the fact. 
we didn't make any news at all. <laughs> yeah. Nobody cares. Yeah. That just feeds right into who we are and what we're about. You know, Paul Christ has taken questions like, hey, do you think competing for the playoffs is like the next step your program's prepared to take? They were they were 13 and one. Yeah. They were 12 and 0. They were literally one fourth quarter away from being in the playoff last year, right? Mm-hmm. But that that's Wisconsin as a program. They they aren't as overtly uh, um, confrontational about the chip on their shoulder as D'Antonio is at Michigan State. Mm-hmm. But they that is that is one of their primary weapons as well, and they wield it well. Indeed. All right, that will wrap up this week's Bigger Ten podcast. I'm going to run outside and batten down the hatches. For Steve, I'm John. We'll talk to you soon. (laughs) All right, man, thanks. You got it, man. Take care.